Chapter 14 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 14, Cedar Creek. General Lee had recognized the error of the detachment of R. H. Anderson when it was too late to be remedied. In fact, he had never been urgent in his demands for those troops. He had merely represented to Early his pressing need, and asked for them if they could be spared. Writing just before the Battle of the Opequon, when, although he did not know it, the detachment was already on the march, he said, quote, I wish you to defeat Sheridan if your strength is sufficient. He seems disposed to protect himself under his entrenchments. If you could draw him up the valley, this proved an easy task, and fall upon him suddenly, or throw a body of troops behind him, you might succeed in defeating him." After the battle had been fought and lost, Early, in the angry candor of defeat, wrote from Port Republic that Sheridan's superiority in cavalry and the inefficiency of the Confederate horse had been the cause of his disaster, that the first trouble at Fisher's Hill would, quote, have been remedied if the troops had remained steady, but a panic seized them at the idea of being flanked and without being defeated they broke, many of them fleeing shamefully. The artillery was not captured by the enemy, but abandoned by the infantry." On the receipt of this letter, in which the beaten general unpacked his heart with such bitter words against his unfortunate soldiers, Lee at once ordered all available force to his support, Kershaw's infantry and Rosser's cavalry, besides promising the cooperation of Breckinridge and wrote a letter of kindly and cheerful encouragement. Quote, I very much regret the reverses that have occurred in the valley, but trust they can be remedied. The arrival of Kershaw will add greatly to your strength. It will require that everyone should exert all his energies and strength to meet the emergency. One victory will put all things to rights. Maneuver so, if you can, as to keep the enemy in check until you can strike him with all your strength. End quote. He urged upon him a policy of concentration and the utmost vigilance, told him that he had sent him all the reserves in the valley. Quote, the enemy must be defeated, and I rely upon you to do it. Set all your officers to work bravely and hopefully, and all will go well. The enemy's force cannot be so greatly superior to yours. His effective infantry, I do not think, exceeds 12,000 men, end quote an estimate somewhat under the truth, but far nearer to it than the frantic exaggeration of Early. The question that now presented itself to Sheridan was whether or not he should follow the enemy to Brown's Gap, drive him out, and advance on Charlottesville and Gordonsville. He could, of course, have done nothing which would have been more agreeable to Grant, but he was sufficiently secure in the confidence and regard of his commander to follow his own judgment, and he acted with his usual intelligence and prudence in deciding against the move. He saw that a considerable force would have been required to protect the new line from Alexandria, another to guard the valley. Quote, then, as he said, there was the additional reason of the uncertainty as to whether the army in front of Petersburg could hold the entire force of General Lee there, and in case it could not, a sufficient number might be detached and moved rapidly by rail and overwhelm me, quickly returning. End quote. It is a remarkable coincidence that at the very moment when Sheridan was balancing these considerations in his mind and wisely acting upon them, the President was sending this dispatch to General Grant. Quote, I hope it will have no constraint on you, 
nor do harm any way, for me to say I am a little afraid lest Lee sends reinforcements to Early, and thus enables him to turn upon Sheridan. End quote. Lincoln and Sheridan took precisely the same view of the matter, which was correct, though it was not the view taken at first by Grant, who thought he could prevent any reinforcement being sent by Lee from Richmond. Having resolved upon terminating his campaign at Harrisonburg, and sending a part of his army back to Petersburg, a course which received the approval of General Grant in consideration of the needs of the Army of the Potomac, after Deep Bottom and the extension of his lines to the Weldon Road, Sheridan thoroughly devastated the Upper Valley, and destroyed such bridges as were within his reach, and on the 6th of October began his retrograde movement, capturing or destroying all subsistence as he went, but giving the most stringent orders against burning dwellings. Early, taking renewed heart, both from his strong and welcome reinforcements in horse, foot, and artillery, and from the supposed retreat of his enemy, followed, his cavalry being in advance, in what he imagined was a hot pursuit. On the evening of the 8th, having arrived at Fisher's Hill, Sheridan ordered Torbert to engage and defeat the Confederate cavalry at daylight, which was done with great energy and thoroughness. T. L. Rosser, who had succeeded Wickham in the command of Fitzhugh Lee's division, and Lomax, were utterly routed, after a short engagement, losing, as Sheridan said, quote, everything they had on wheels, end quote, and running for twenty miles. The next day Sheridan crossed Cedar Creek and went into camp on the north bank. It was his intention to send the Sixth Corps from this point to join Grant at Petersburg and the march, by way of Ashby's Gap, was actually begun. But Early, having again advanced and resumed his position at Fisher's Hill, Wright was brought back to await further developments. At this moment, Grant once more reverted to his favorite idea of a movement on Gordonsville, and the establishment of a base for that purpose in the vicinity of Manassas Gap. Sheridan, not agreeing as to its advisability, after some correspondence with General Halleck, in compliance with an invitation from the Secretary of War, started for Washington for a consultation on the evening of the 15th, believing that the enemy could not accomplish much in his absence, and not thinking best to attack him at Fisher's Hill. He took with him all the cavalry, intending to push it through Chester Gap to Charlottesville, while he went on to Washington by rail, but on arriving at Front Royal, he received a telegram from General Wright, who had been left in command at Cedar Creek, indicating that an attack was expected from Early. Sheridan therefore sent the cavalry back to Wright, and proceeded on his way to Washington. He arrived there on the 17th, left the same day, and reached Winchester on the evening of the 18th. All being quiet, he spent the night there, and the next morning rode tranquilly out of the town on the way to his army. About nine o'clock he was startled by the sound of heavy artillery firing, and immediately after found to his dismay the road filled with fugitives in blue uniforms, quote, trains and men coming to the rear with appalling rapidity, end quote. A great disaster seemed in progress, but out of this disaster was to emerge for him an immortal renown. General Early, finding himself by the total destruction of provisions in the valley, reduced to the alternative of fighting or retreating, had resolved to attack Sheridan in his position. In planning his attack, he had one enormous advantage. From his signal station at the point where the Massanutten Range comes to an end above the Shenandoah, his topographical officers could scan the Union camps like a map, and mark every road, every ford, and every entrenchment for miles around. 
The point from which General Wright eventually expected an attack to come was on his right, where the back road crossed the shallow rivulet, and he had taken his measures accordingly. But Early discovered that by crossing the north fork of the Shenandoah, he could move down the eastern bank, through fields occupied by his cavalry, by a narrow pathway at the foot of the mountain, and crossing again by a ford below the mouth of Cedar Creek, could come in upon the rear of the left flank of the Union army. He therefore resolved upon this scheme, and made his preparations with creditable skill and energy. He placed his flanking force, consisting of three divisions, Gordon, Ramseur, and Pegram, under Gordon, and as soon as it was dark on the night of the 18th, sent him across the river with orders to be in position to attack by five o'clock in the morning, a little before daybreak. He himself moved an hour after midnight, with Kershaw's and Wharton's divisions, by the turnpike through Strasburg, leaving orders for the artillery to wait until the last moment, and then to gallop down the pike, as he wished to avoid giving the alarm by the rumbling of the wheels over the macadam. It is a curious instance of the personal malevolence which had grown up in his mind against his adversary, that a part of his plan embraced the seizure of Sheridan in his headquarters by a strong force of cavalry. The march was accomplished with perfect success. Early's own column separated at Strasburg. Wharton continued on the pike with orders not to show himself until the attack was made on the left, and Early remained with Kershaw, who bore off to the right to attack Crook's left flank at Bowman's Mill, while Gordon came in on his rear. They came in sight of the Union campfires at three o'clock. The moon gave sufficient light to guide their march. With unbounded joy and confidence, Early saw his enemy apparently delivered into his hands. He gave his final commands at his leisure, and at half-past four, the distant sound of carbines having been heard on his left, where Rosser's cavalry was attacking Custer, and a rattle of musketry from the right, which showed that Gordon was brushing the pickets away from the ford, he sent Kershaw forward. His division, veiled by the mist of the morning, poured like phantoms over Crook's entrenchments, capturing seven guns and turning them on their flying owners, and the troops in camp suddenly aroused out of sleep. The surprise was perfect. Crook's soldiers were good ones, but they had been in battle often enough to know the best thing they could do under the circumstances was to go. Though General Thoburn, the gallant commander of the first division, lost his life in an attempt to stem the disaster. The second division, under a general who afterwards commanded the armies and navies of the United States, Rutherford B. Hayes, held firm after the first had melted away, and Wright, Crook, and Emery, roused by the tumult, speedily formed a line to resist Kershaw's advance, which would doubtless have been effective, had it not been that the moment it was ready, Gordon, with his three divisions, came thundering in from the left and rear, out of a heavy fog which had favoured his march from the river. The rest of Crook's corps, under this unexpected and terrific onslaught, streamed away to the right and rear, and left the Nineteenth Corps uncovered and wholly unprepared for resistance. General Wright, seeing the serious disadvantage of attempting to hold his original line with the enemy on the flank of the Nineteenth Corps, at once ordered Getty to take the Sixth Corps, which was intact and in perfect condition, to tenable ground in the rear, and directed Emory to fall back and take position on the right of the Sixth. These orders were promptly executed, and from the moment the tide of battle struck the heroic Sixth Corps, the current of Confederate victory was stayed. 
for although they withdrew first to a point west of Middletown, and afterwards to one north of that place, they fought with undaunted energy, and, making early pay dearly for every foot gained, finally brought him to a stand. But at first a great victory seemed secured to him. As soon as he saw Crook's entrenchments carried by Kershaw's rush, he rode to the left, where Wharton and the artillery had arrived, and there heard the welcome racket of Gordon's musketry in the rear of the Union lines. The sun was rising, and it must have seemed to him the sun of Austerlitz, as he ordered Wharton forward, and riding in advance of him over the stream, met Gordon on the opposite hill. The success had not been gained gratis, for Gordon reported to his chief that the fighting had been severe. But Crook and Emery, so far as he could judge, were in complete rout, and he anticipated an easy task in the demolition of the Sixth Corps. Ramseur and Pegram told him their divisions were in line confronting it, but that there was a vacancy on their right which should be filled. He ordered Wharton's fresh division forward for that purpose. But in a very short time, to his great disappointment, quote, Wharton's division, he says, came back in some confusion, end quote. They had gone gallantly in, expecting to share in the pursuit of fugitives, but they were greeted with a withering fire from Getty's division, under command of Vermont, Louis A. Grant, before which they staggered. Upon this, Grant's troops rushed out from their position and drove the Confederates headlong down the hill. Early's artillery now opened with a furious fire, which checked the countercharge. General Bidwell, who had made the gallant sortie from the works at Washington a few months before, fell mortally wounded at this point. It was now nine o'clock. The sun had dispersed the fogs of the morning. The sanguine energy of the Confederate attack was constantly diminishing. The defense of the Union officers was becoming more coherent. They were not yet, however, ready to advance, nor even sure of holding their own. And in face of the powerful artillery of Early, which was in full action, and of evident preparations for assault on the Confederate left, Wright withdrew his troops to a point north of Middletown, where he established them in good position, and waited Early's attack behind hastily improvised defenses. Early came on with as much speed as possible, intent upon finishing his day's work, and when he arrived in front of Wright's new lines, he sent pressing orders to his division commanders to attack. But his aides came back to him from every part of the field with surprisingly unsatisfactory reports. Kershaw said, quote, his division was not in condition to make the attack, as it was very much scattered, and there was a cavalry force threatening him in front, end quote. Gordon's division, an aide reported, was not fit to attack, and he had not delivered the order. Early says he himself had seen a number of men plundering the captured camps, and this disorder increased all day. Both on the right and the left, the Union cavalry was strong, and the recollection of their work at Fisher's Hill gave Early great concern for his flanks. This uneasiness so grew upon him that when, at last, on Gordon coming up, he ordered him to attack, in consideration of the strength of the Union cavalry, he told Gordon, if the enemy's line seemed too strong, not to make the assault, and Gordon, availing himself of that proviso, did not assault. It was now apparent, says General Early, that it would not do to press my troops further. They had been up all night and were much jaded. In passing over rough ground to attack the enemy in the early morning, their own ranks had been much disordered, and the men scattered, and it had required time to reform them. 
Their ranks, moreover, were much thinned by the absence of the men engaged in plundering the enemy's camps. End quote. In this state of things, the only preoccupation of the Confederate general was to get safely away from the field with his spoil. His prisoners, some 1,400, had already been sent to the rear on the way to Richmond, and he hoped, by holding his line until nightfall, to be able either to retire in safety or rally his disordered columns for new successes. But the choice of advance or retreat was no longer his. He had reached his highest tide of achievement. A swift and final ebb was to follow. The initiative had already passed into younger and abler hands than his own, Sheridan had arrived at the lines in his front. He had ridden with an escort of twenty men, devouring the ground, for twelve miles amid the horrid signs of defeat that encumbered the road, giving orders all the way to stop the stragglers, to park the guns, appealing with vehement energy to the fugitives to turn from the way of dishonor to their duty, and, to use his own admirable phrase, quote, hundreds of the men, who on reflection found they had not done themselves justice, came back with cheers. End quote. Arriving at the front, he was received with an indescribable tumult of joy. He found the Sixth Corps and the cavalry intact, all the horse and Getty's division of infantry opposing the enemy, and two other divisions about two miles to the right and rear. He immediately took command, Wright resuming charge of the Sixth Corps, and Getty that of his own division. Sheridan ordered all the troops in the rear up to Getty's line, where he proposed to make his fight, and with his fiery and contagious energy began to put everything in shape for battle. He sent Custer's cavalry back to the right, ordered a line of battle to be formed prolonging that of Getty. His ride to the front, on his well-known black charger, had caused the men to reflect, and the first fruit of their reflection was that they came back not merely by hundreds, but by thousands, and filled up the depleted ranks of the regiments in line. So that the strange spectacle was presented of an army surprised and beaten in the morning, forced back four miles, then suddenly recovering its tone and spirit, and actually increasing its effective strength, while the victorious enemy grew weaker and more languid every hour. When Early made his ineffective attack about one o'clock, it was readily repulsed by the 19th Corps and part of the 6th. But Sheridan was not satisfied with repulsing the enemy. As he galloped up the valley, he shouted to his troops, quote, We are going to get back those camps and those guns, end quote. And at four o'clock, he felt that he was ready to keep his word. He gave the order to advance, riding up and down the lines in the midst of tempestuous cheering and the whole command sprang forward with an impulse which made victory secure in advance. Wright was on the left, Emory on the right, Crook in column in reserve. Custer and Merritt led the cavalry on the right and left flanks, respectively. One spirit animated the whole mass, and there was no beating them back. Their advance was by no means unopposed. Early had protected his lines with breastworks, and in front of Emory a vigorous resistance was made. The Confederate flank here overlapped the Union right, but a charge by James W. McMillan's brigade into the re-entering angle thus formed broke the rebel line. Gordon's brigades, mindful of former terrible experiences on the left flank, crumbled away one by one, communicating their confusion to the right as the rest of the line was attacked, and Wright's corps moved forward, driving the enemy before them. Merritt's cavalry charged through Middletown, 
sweeping the roads on the left, but meeting a heavy loss in the death of Colonel Charles Russell Lowell of the Reserve Brigade, composed for the most part of regular troops, a young officer of the noblest character and the most brilliant accomplishments. Early speaks with perhaps undeserved severity of the conduct of his own troops, quote, Every effort was made to stop and rally Kershaw's and Ramseur's men, but the mass of them resisted all appeals, and continued to go to the rear without waiting for any effort to retrieve the partial disorder. Ramseur himself opposed a bold front to inevitable disaster, and gathering a few hundred brave men together, fought till he fell mortally wounded. Horton and Pegram on the pike were the last to give way, but once started their commands also went to pieces, and the rout was complete. The National Infantry pursued no farther than Hupp's Hill, but the cavalry of Custer and Devon dashed upon the fugitives. At a little brook near Fisher's Hill, a bridge broke down, and the road was instantly blocked. Here the cavalry reaped a rich harvest of guns, caissons, wagons, and ambulances. All the captured cannon of the morning were recovered, and two dozen more taken. The disorganized force of Early fled in wild confusion up the valley through the night and the next day, never stopping till they got to Newmarket. He had lost in this battle, which was so admirably planned, and which opened so auspiciously, about 3,000 men, of whom he reports 1,860 as killed and wounded. The Union loss was in all 5,665, the loss in killed and wounded being far heavier than that of the Confederates but the net result was vastly in favor of the national arms. The veteran force of Early, composed of as fine troops as the Confederacy could furnish, was so completely defeated in this battle that it never again, as a whole, did an efficient day's work. The victory of Cedar Creek, gained after a day of such dramatic incidents and contrasts, was received throughout the country with tumultuous enthusiasm. It gave Sheridan not only the immense popularity which he always retained, but also a place in the confidence of the government and of the troops, which greatly increased his efficiency and value. Grant said this action, quote, stamped Sheridan, what I have always thought him, one of the ablest of generals, end quote. Meade generously joined an unmeasured praise of him. Congress and state legislatures exhausted the language of eulogy in their resolutions. The president immediately sent a dispatch, saying, quote, with great pleasure I tender to you and your brave army the thanks of the nation and my own personal admiration and gratitude for the month's operations in the Shenandoah Valley, and especially for the splendid work of October 19, 1864, and the highest guerdon in the gift of the nation was to follow. On November 8th, Sheridan was appointed a major general in the regular army, and his commission was accompanied by words, dictated by Mr. Lincoln, of the warmest and most cordial appreciation of, quote, the personal gallantry, military skill, and just confidence in the courage and patriotism of your troops, displayed by you on the 19th day of October at Cedar Run, whereby, under the blessing of Providence, your routed army was reorganized, a great national disaster averted, and a brilliant victory achieved over the rebels for the third time in pitched battle within thirty days. Thoroughly defeated as he was, however, Early had lost very little of his numerical strength, and the convalescents and conscripts who were sent to him during the weeks he remained at Newmarket, together with George B. Cosby's brigade, which reinforced him from southwestern Virginia, 
more than made up all his losses. Rosser guarded the valley at Stony Creek, a few miles below Mount Jackson, and Lomax held the Luray Road at the strongly fortified post at Milford. In these circumstances, the Shenandoah could not be left undefended, and the movement of troops to Grant, which had been checked by Early's advance on Cedar Creek, was not resumed after the battle. One of the advantages of the victory was that Sheridan now felt firm enough in his place to insist upon his own opinion, even against the general-in-chief, who immediately recurred to his favorite idea of an advance upon the Virginia Central Railroad. This Sheridan disapproved, giving sound reasons against it, and was allowed to have his way. On the 9th of November, he moved his army back to Kernstown for greater convenience of quarters and supply. General Early, imagining that Sheridan was preparing to send troops to Grant, moved down the valley, hoping to strike a blow at the diminished force. He crossed Cedar Creek on the 11th, but not being satisfied with the aspect of affairs, hastily retreated on the night of the next day. Sheridan, in his report, attributes this movement to bluster, and says he was unaware that Early's infantry was in front of him, quote, until it was too late to overtake it in its galloping retreat, end quote. In this affair, W. H. Powell severely defeated McCausland on the road to Front Royal. When Early got back to the upper valley, as it was now plain he could do nothing with his force, Kershaw was returned to Lee and Cosby to Breckinridge. The great campaign was over. During the remainder of the year, there were still reconnaissances and detached movements of cavalry on both sides. Merritt was sent into Loudoun County, so to destroy all forage and subsistence as to make it uninhabitable by the Confederate guerrillas, and he rigorously executed his orders. Rosser crossed the Great North Mountain and captured a post on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Torbert, on the 19th of December, in obedience to Grant's urgent and reiterated requests, was pushed through Chester Gap to strike the Central Road, and Custer rode up the valley to make a diversion in favor of the other column. But Sheridan's judgment was vindicated by the failure of the expedition. The two armies were now rapidly dissolved by the demands of Grant and Lee. Early's Second Corps went to Lee, leaving only Wharton and some cavalry and artillery, with which he moved back to winter quarters at Staunton. Sheridan sent the Sixth Corps to Grant, where they arrived by the middle of December. Crook's Corps, Army of West Virginia, followed them. Only the 19th was left in the Shenandoah, and one of its divisions also went to Grant during the winter. Although events had vindicated in every point the wisdom of Sheridan's view as to an advance upon the Virginia Central Railroad, the advantage of breaking it up was so important to Grant that he continually recurred to the subject, and at last, on the 27th of February, 1865, Sheridan, now unencumbered by infantry, moved up the valley with a magnificent force of 10,000 horsemen, under orders from Grant to destroy the Virginia Central Railroad and the James River Canal, to capture Lynchburg, if he found it practicable, and to push south and join Sherman in North Carolina, or return to Winchester, as he might find most opportune. The feeble resistance which Rosser could make against this formidable host was swept aside at a blow. Early was found on the morning of March 2nd, posted on a hill near Waynesboro, with two brigades of Wharton, some guns, and cavalry. This Early had hoped, and the hope was not extravagant, would be force sufficient at least to check Sheridan's advance until nightfall, when he expected to cross the river and take position in Rockfish Gap. 
He had done, he said, more difficult things than that during the war. A division of veteran infantry well posted, with good artillery, on commanding ground, might reasonably expect to hold at bay a division of cavalry indefinitely. But Custer, with three brigades of horse, carried the position as easily as if it were a child's snow fort. Without even wasting time in reconnaissance, he sent three regiments round the enemy's left flank, and boldly rode at the front with the rest of his force. Quote, the enemy, says Sheridan, threw down their arms and surrendered, with cheers at the suddenness with which they were captured. Early himself says, quote, The troops gave way after making very slight resistance, and soon everything was in a state of confusion. End quote. The Confederate general, A. L. Long, who was present, is singularly explicit as to the nature of the disaster. He says, quote, As Sheridan was without artillery, and the ground was unfit for the operations of cavalry, Early could have maintained his position with reliable troops, but there was considerable disaffection in Wharton's division. Therefore, without his knowledge, his little army harbored the elements of defeat. Its morale was gone. It crumbled at the first energetic touch. The final catastrophe was not far off when a division of hardy foot soldiers surrendered with cheers to the first troopers who leaped over their breastworks. The five Confederate generals present, Early, Horton, Long, R.D. Lilly, and Rosser, saved themselves in the woods, and Early, from a lofty lookout, quote, had the mortification, he says, of seeing the greater part of his command being carried off as prisoners. End quote. He rode with his staff from one station to another, everywhere finding the hated blue uniforms in possession, but finally made his weary way through the ice and sleet to Richmond, his army having absolutely disappeared. He was kindly received by General Lee and sent back to, quote, reorganize what was left of his command, end quote, but was soon after superseded by General John Eccles. Quote, the only solution of this affair which I can give, he says in his memoir, with that curious absence of the sense of humor which gives such comic force to all his writing, is that my men did not fight as I had expected them to do. End quote. But although his victory at Waynesboro left the valley at Sheridan's mercy, he was not then or thereafter to take Lynchburg any more than his predecessors. He went into Charlottesville and destroyed the railroad right and left. Merritt's cavalry wrecked the canal. Manufactories and mills were everywhere burned. Lynchburg had been reinforced by infantry, and Sheridan determined not to attack it, but to push eastward and join Grant, ruining as he went. End of chapter 14. Recording by Owen Cook in Pottawatomie, Ceded Land.